this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch. A dog watch is an evening shift of early or late duty, or the people who undertake it. This dog watch considers the natural world and the things that help us experience it, from dogs to watches and everything in between. Ultimately, it's a place for us to go wherever curiosity takes us. On this episode of The Dog Watch, we talk with James Costa and learn about the role of domesticated organisms like dogs in the development of Darwin's theory of natural selection. We range from Downhouse in England to the Galapagos Islands and discuss how these organisms affected Darwin's thinking. Before we begin, our feature today is Charles Darwin's dog, Polly. Polly was a white fox terrier, now a Jack Russell, She was one of the many dogs that Darwin had throughout his life, but may have been his favorite. The Darwin Correspondence Project points us to a letter from 1871 where Darwin writes, I most heartily subscribe to what you say about the qualities of dogs. I have one whom I love with all my heart. With that, let's turn to our conversation with James Costa. There are those whose interests and personality seem to be a perfect fit for the nexus of science, culture, nature, and even dogs that we consider here on The Dog Watch. Today, we have the great pleasure of talking with just one of those people, James T. Costa. Jim is an evolutionary biologist, entomologist, and Darwin scholar, as well as a professor at Western Carolina University and the director of the Highlands Biological Station. He not only follows in Darwin's footsteps as a first-rate naturalist and confirmed experimentizer, he also has gone deep into the evolutionary history and development of theory, and even has taught courses on Darwin using his original manuscripts. Jim is author of numerous books, including The Annotated Origin and Darwin's Backyard, and is an old friend. Jim, welcome to The Dog Watch. Oh, thanks so much, Mike. Great to be here. So I assume you're in Western North Carolina at the moment, and I know you spend a lot of time at the Highlands Biological Station during the course of the year. I'm curious, as a naturalist, how would you describe what's unique about the natural habitat of that area of the country? Oh, yeah, this, um, you know, the Southern Appalachian region, Western North Carolina, um, East Tennessee, the Great Smoky Mountains region, is just um, a slice of heaven for biologists, you know, for, for a naturalist. It's, um, you know, extremely biodiverse. Um, it's, you know, parts of it qualify as temperate rainforest, you know, just tremendously wet, you know, maybe outside the Pacific Northwest, the second wettest region on the, on the continent. And that just fuels this just incredibly, you know, just lush diversity of, of uh, community types. Um, you know, the, the ecosystem here is just teeming. And I find it just endlessly fascinating, not just the insects, but, you know, um, the, the birds, you know, the, the mammals, um, sort of a, a, a global hotspot for plethodonid or lungless salamanders. Oh, wow. Um, it's just such a, such a fascinating and very beautiful area. So, yeah, I really love it. Yeah, it's, it sometimes doesn't get it to do, you know, as far as where, how diverse it is and how beautiful it is. I've been down that way a couple times and it's just gorgeous. Um, so, well, thanks for that. And I'm curious, sort of, you too will focus on, obviously, our conversation, Charles Darwin and all those kinds of things. But before we get into that, I'm curious about how you became a naturalist and evolutionary biologist. Like, were you a naturalist as a kid? 
Mm, I, I was, yeah. I guess like so many field biologists, I was something of a, of a kid naturalist. Um, and, you know, I think lo- maybe like lots of kids, you know, you have certain interests at certain ages. And um, my, I think my first love was astronomy, actually. Huh. And I still have a, a, real, a real love of astronomy. Um, but that kind of grew into, you know, other aspects of, of natural history, you know, as a, as a kid, um, you know, uh, botanizing and, and, and looking at birds and um, not so much insects. I sort of discovered them in, in college um, under the mentorship of a, of a really, um, you know, really uh, excellent mentor, uh, Terry Fitzgerald at SUNY Cortland. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned an awful lot about insects and evolutionary biology from, from him. Um, and so it's interesting coming to that a little bit later may have then launched me into a kind of career um, studying insects. Uh, you know, sometimes you come to something a little bit later and it just becomes, you know, the, that, that passion at a formative time when you're, when you're really getting serious about, um, about doing something professionally. Right. right. That's fantastic. And you also are, have been the champion of some groups that haven't... Um previously been as uh as widely known or whatever you wrote a very long and fascinating book <laughs> on an insect group do you want to just briefly yes. plug that or <laughs> sure yeah. well yeah the my, my manifesto <laughs> yes that's right uh the other insect societies yes. uh, my my first book um you're right it was you know i i, I was um introduced to the the wonderful world of of insect social behavior and evolution by my undergraduate mentor Terry Fitzgerald and um and really just endlessly fascinating because he didn't study the usual suspects of you know ants and bees and wasps and things as interesting as they are um but he studied caterpillars you know um tent caterpillars and those, and op- really opened my eyes to this whole yeah. interesting world of um of larval societies, of the different ways that they um, communicate and cooperate, um, their group living, their group foraging and defense and behaving in ways that I just never, you know, I just had never been aware of before. And, but also realized how they, um, how they just didn't fit the, the standard paradigm for studying, classifying and studying, you know, um, uh, social behavior and evolution. Right. And, you know, maybe it says something about my interest in, in history of science, but I delved into the history of uh, insect sociobiology, wanting to better understand where did the conceptual framework that we work within come from you right. know, to begin with and why don't these things fit in. And I found it to be a kind of, um, you know, sort of myrmecocentric <laughs> view, <laughs> shall right. we say. <laughs> That's ant-centric for, yes, for exactly. the listener. Yes, <laughs> ant-centric and... <laughs> And uh, and apidocentric, you know, yeah, the, bee, right. the bee folks, and, and then the wasp <laughs> folks, um, mm. and so um, the other insect societies was, um, well, you know, I guess it reflects, my, you know, maybe I can be a little OCD, a little compulsive about certain things, and I, I I delved into trying to learn everything that had been written about different forms of sociality across the. Um, across the the world of arthropods right uh, so not just insects but also you know arachnids and and um and i was very fortunate to be uh connected with um with a, a very supportive editor at harvard university press who really encouraged this 
maybe to a fault because it, it kind of snowballed and yeah. what was maybe to have been a book of only, you know, so long, be, you know, snowballed into this, <laughs> this manifesto of a doorstopper, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it's a great contribution because those kinds of things are where information is that doesn't exist other places or it collected, right? I think, as you say, the ant literature now, I mean, obviously there was mm. some seminal works, et cetera, but there's a lot Right, but those other groups don't have as much, and so I, I find That's it true. to be an yeah. amazing contribution, actually, and a beautiful book too. So well, they they really did a you know Harvard University Press is of course you know just first rate. I mean out, yeah. outstanding um, with the in the in production, and I had just wonderful experiences, and I, I was really just so pleased with um, with the production of that book. It is a it is beautifully done. Yeah, and um, of course this sort of thing becomes dated a bit you know, yeah. quickly in the sense that you could only assess literature up to that point, right? right. But but science marches on. But I think that, it, I think it, you know, it, it had its intended effect of maybe yeah. drawing attention to the incredible diversity of interesting behaviors. Many of um, these groups are just poorly understood, poorly studied. And, I, and I'm hoping, you know, help to inspire, you know, uh, more than a few uh, master's theses and doctoral right. dissertations. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Well, speaking of beautiful books, um, <laughs> I have in front of me your annotated origin, and so we can ah. sort of <laughs> transition, right, which is also another HUP book, Harvard Press book, um, from Darwin. So you've spent a lot of, obviously, a lot of time studying uh, Charles Darwin. And mm. many, <laughs> I, I guess I would start, like, with many of our listeners will know a good bit about him, but others may have a limited exposure. And so I'm kind of wondering if you could just very briefly encapsulate you know, who, who Darwin was and what's the main question, I guess, evolution by natural selection that he pursued? Like, how was that a question at that time? And, you know, this could be a course, right? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> just in a minute or two, like, how, how would you have in the elevator describe Darwin and, and the question that he wanted to get at? No, boy. You know, that's, that's a, a tough one. Yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a tough one. I mean, you know, who is this guy? I mean, yeah, um, because there, there's so many facets, such a, an interesting guy, you know, we, I mean, our interest, my interest, you know, stems from the fact that, you know, Darwin, as well as, um, you know, his contemporary Alfred Russell Wallace um, um, had actually, you know, made one of the one of humanity's greatest discoveries, right? Um, you know, to, to actually um, ultimately gain this insight into this, um, the reality of this idea of, of species change, uh, of evolution, as we call it now, they, they called it transmutation, and to sort of have this this grand vision of of this burgeoning tree of life, you know, just all of you know the teeming diversity of of the world is kind of all um, ultimately related, like you know, um, like some great branching and rebranching tree. It's just this really um, grand, grand vision, and um, you know the the guy, you know, who, um, behind that discovery. In this case, Darwin. I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about Wallace and right. another interesting guy. Yep. Um, but, you know, I, I became fascinated with, you know, how, how does this, um, what was the intellectual trajectory of this person? How does this guy kind of come up with this kind of kind of insight? Because, right. you know, he just, you know, by all accounts, seems like a, you know, um, you know pretty, pretty, pretty sharp guy, you know, but sort of average in some ways and not the best student and, you know, more interested maybe in, you um, non-academic pursuits 
um, early on. It seems so unlikely. And so you have this kind of, um, you know, kind of well-off, kind of, um, you know, well-educated um, country gentleman, in a sense, um, who becomes a kind of gentleman naturalist and um, comes to this, 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 this uh, insight, you know, about the idea of species change, which is, you know, kind of a heretical notion uh, in polite society, scientific society at, at the time. Sure. Um, and, um, but he becomes kind of obsessed with that and, and, and is convinced of it and is convinced that the only way to convince others is to really make an ironclad argument for it. And so there he is just kind of um, working away, working away, you know, um, you know, literally at home in his, in, in the, in his gardens, in the, in the meadows and the, in the woodlands surrounding his house, he's, he's making observations, he's reading extensively, he's corresponding with, with um, naturalists um, near and far, you know, some of whom were, you know, his good friends, but he's really has a global correspondence, just gathering, gathering information, um, ferreting out, you know, these lines of, of evidence to kind of collate into this, um, this monumental argument uh, in in support of this um, this heretical idea, you know that that right. species could could change, and I was just really fascinated with you know how who is this guy and yeah. and how you know how did he how did he come to this idea and his working method that that kind of patient kind of stick to itness of of, um, of of gathering information, but also the kind of um, fascinating. Uh, experimentizing, as right. you mentioned in your, in your introduction. <laughs> I picked that I love, up from I you, I love that, Jim. that word. We need to bring that back. You know? <laughs> well, you've, you've started. I, I'm just a disciple. So. <laughs> but, you know, he's just endlessly um, creative. And, and also, um, you know, again, he's just a guy, though, right? Yeah. And that's another yeah. in- thing that's so interesting. Like, he's not, you know, we, there are some figures in the history of science that we just, we just you know, we just, or a god, you know, we just say genius, you know, right, just right. almost incomprehensible what they can, what what they've achieved, you know, uh, like I could never comprehend the kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 the mathematics and the insights of, a, of an Einstein. Sure. Um, and, you know, Darwin is genius in a, in a rather different way, but he also, he, he, he comes across as, you know, this eminently, um, human guy you know he's a father you know he's a husband um he's a friend um he's got a great sense of humor you know he's just kind of doing his thing um and he has some inkling of how important it is and i find that interesting too the the supreme confidence that he had that this is a revolutionary idea this could change this would change the whole course of um, of what we would call now the biological sciences, right? You know, right. and um, yeah. So that's, I mean, I don't know that that's yeah, a very, you know, absolutely. that's not exactly an elevator description. No. <laughs> but I think that's exactly what I was hoping for, right? To kind of mm. set the stage, and obviously, the idea of evolution by a process of natural selection is what he then kind of brought forward and and made the argument of and, yes. and articulated in all of his work. So, okay, so D- Darwin was interested in this process, right, of natural selection and kind of, of species change by mm. that process. And I would say, you know, we're obviously interested sort of in dogs and thinking about dogs, but... Mm. 
dogs are a domesticated species, right? And we think of lots of domesticated species. And in that, sort of as we approach Darwin, there are two sort of related ideas, artificial selection, and then this concept of domestication that come up over and over in titles in, you know, first chapters of Darwin's books, right? They're right, that right. central. So how, how can you help us understand those two things just in a, in a brief sense to make sure the sort of ground groundwork is laid? So what is, what is our, if I asked you what's artificial selection, what's domestication, what would you say? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so it's it's useful to think about how um, domesticated um, species and varieties gave um, gave insight to Darwin. They were a sort of uh, inspiration for for him in coming to this idea of natural selection. So um, so if you think about his his kind of process of um, inquiry and and discovery. Uh, early on, uh, after becoming convinced of you know this idea of transmutation or, or evolution, he didn't have a mechanism. Right, was sort of thinking about how how does this happen, and he had a he had a uh, an intuition that um, domesticated species and their breeds, you know, um, domestic varieties, somehow held the the the, the key to this, and. Um, he, you know, it's well known how he immersed himself in the literature of the animal uh, and plant breeders, especially the an animal breeders, um, just reading the treatises and the kind of how-to manuals of improving, you know, your sheep and your cattle and, you know, so on. Um, and how they, how they did that, you know, how, and, and, it, and I, I think it's interesting to note that there was some um, disagreement in those years, you know, the early 19th century about, um, well, how, how do you, you, you know, improve a breed and how, how do you make a new breed, you know, or a new, new variety? And uh, it was very common, even among many breeders, uh, to assume that you, they would simply, um, it was by crossing, by crossing existing breeds. And you get something new, or you can maybe improve something. And um, and but some of the breeders um, argued that there's more to it than that. And and it's noteworthy that Darwin really cottoned on to this idea, um, reading in some of some of these um, breeding manuals, like that of um, John Seabright, uh, where he he talks about how. Uh, it's a mistake to think that you simply get a new breed by crossing existing breeds. And, and it was actually Seabright, and there may have been others, but I'm, I'm not aware of them, but Seabright actually used the word selection in this context. Huh. And he talked about um, that, how it's, it's not really a question of uh, crossing, you know, existing breeds, but it's a, it all comes down to uh, what he called judicious selection. Hmm. And he mentioned, he talks about this in more than one um, place, you know, um, it's, it, it's all about selection. And, he, you know, he doesn't necessarily go into great detail about, uh, about that process, but it, but it's clear he's talking about selective breeding. And that's, of course, right. what breeders do, right? They, they select, you know, the, um, the, maybe the best example of a particular trait that they're interested in. And they try to um, preserve it and hone it and, may, you know, maybe further improve it. 
um, whether it's you know maybe you know egg size or uh, in chickens or or milk production or um, or um, you know accuracy of of um, of pointing or retrieving in dogs and you know those sorts of things. And Darwin Darwin made made note of this. He copied out passages from um, from Seabright's book and and other works, and um, so he when he was sort of thinking this is how people um, through judicious selection, right? They, they improve breeds. They can even make new breeds over time. Right. Right. So his, his quest was then um, how does this happen in nature? Right. How, how, you know, how does, how can this happen in a, in a natural context without a kind of, you know, there, you know, he didn't believe that there was some omniscient, you know, a deity doing the selecting. So it must happen in a, in a natural way. Right. And um, and he eventually, you know, by his own account, you know, kind of uh, connected some dots by thinking about the extent of naturally occurring uh, variation and thinking about population pressure, uh, thinking about his Thomas Robert Malthus and, and population pressure and the struggle for existence. He kind of connected those dots and realized right. that that sets up a, uh, a natural selection dynamic. And um, so I believe that that the, the term that he coined, natural selection, was coined um, specifically with um, the word selection as used by the by the uh, by the animal breeders in right. mind. Right? right. So artificial selection, kind of you know, his insight into that process and learning about that process predates then and helped inspire his insight into natural selection. Right. Fascinating. And just so I understand what you're saying and make sure I have it right. So Mm -hmm. one of the narratives I think that we often have about Darwin is that Darwin was this guy in England who went on this voyage of the Beagle and he saw the Galapagos Islands and saw all the cool stuff. And finches, you know, might, might be iguanas, whatever, the marine iguanas, and then thought, wow, that's super cool. (laughs) <laughs> here's this idea of natural selection, right? That right, that's kind right, of the, right. but it sounds like what you're saying is that he did do those things. He had a sense of variation in the natural world and all these crazy solutions, but a good bit of the inspiration and actually even the term he used was inspired to a great extent by looking at things that humans had done to change animals, the mechanisms mm. and being inspired by that. And, and a lot of his theory sort of grew out of that along with sort of the idea of struggle for existence. Is that, is that fair to say it that way? Yeah. Yeah. That, that is fair. Um, yeah. And I think you're right that in the, in the popular imagination, the lore, you know, um, because the Galapagos islands, you know, loom large, there's often this kind of assumption that, yeah, he had this, this moment of, a, of epiphany in uh, visiting those islands and, and, and in some versions of this, he set out on this voyage to solve the great mystery of the origin of species and right. that sort of thing. And, you know, both of those are incorrect. Right? Right. We, we right. know very, very well from the, the documentary record. Um, so, you know, he, he, was, he was, you know, uh, an, a, an aspiring naturalist as a, as a college kid, came under the, you know, the influence of one of his esteemed professors, um, John Stevens Henslow, the botanist. Um, right. And, you know, he had this, he, he adored the, the travel narratives of, of, of the great, you know, tr- sort of naturalist explorers like Alexander von Humboldt, 
uh, for example, and and he he longed to travel and to see the world, and um, and you know, lucky him, you know, I mean, he um, he was basically sort of given the nod, recommended by his professor when an opportunity arose with uh, with HMS Beagle, um, and you know, it's kind of a misunderstanding that you know he was somehow um, he was. Um, you know, he set out on that voyage to to solve any particular problem, right? Um, or even that he was, you know, maybe the, you know, some kind of a great and well established naturalist. <laughs> right. You know, second he, or he, third he got, choice was he? <laughs> yeah, you yep. know, he was certainly at least second. Yep. You know, and um, because after all, he he had just graduated college. You know, right. he didn't he he wasn't really expert. He wasn't well established in any one area. Um, but he was, you know, very, very eager to see the world, to learn. Um, you know, he 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 wanted to um, to to um, study geology, really, uh, initially. You know, so he yeah. he was um, he was quite taken with um, Lyle's principles of geology. He had um, he had studied just a crash course in field geology with another of his professors before this voyage that summer before. Um, and that was um, uh, Adam Sedgwick, okay. and uh, really kind of, I think he was beginning to really think that you know he he could be he could be a, a kind of a vicar naturalist. You know, I mean his right. his his great professors at Cambridge were, you know, as Cambridge was at that time. I mean, this was a you know sort of an ecclesiastical institution. All the professors were were um, were clergymen. You know, and. And the idea that you could become, you, you could be a naturalist and, and you could have a flock. And um, it was like, you know, in some, some nice country parish somewhere, um, you know, that really resonated with, with Darwin. He could really see himself in that, in that role. And so, you know, initially his father was resistant to his, you know, going off immediately after graduating college, you know, that he really wanted him to settle down and, and be, and think about taking holy orders, you know, straight right. away. But right. but he relented, and and you know, his uncle helped you know intervene on his behalf and said, hey, this would be really good for him as a clergyman later, you know. Yeah. Um, and so off he went, and and true enough, you know, he he made lots of fascinating uh, observations. He collected lots of valuable um, specimens and and other material, um, but he was not a convinced uh transmutationist you know as again as evolutionists were called then right um and through that whole voyage making observations connecting some dots of things that he had seen that really got him kind of thinking about things thinking about the phrase they might have used was something like the stability of species you know that kind of thing but but certainly not a um you know, he's not an unorthodox thinker at, the, at this point, thinking about, you know, uh, something as, you know, heretical as as species potentially being able to change, which many people interpreted as as, as contradicting <clears throat> scripture, you know, right. at that time. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that the observations he made in Galapagos and elsewhere later provided him with some really valuable data um some some fodder for you know for him but but at the time um he actually didn't even seem to fully quite comprehend what he was seeing in galapagos at the right. time you yep. know 
Um, he famously, you know, didn't even bother labeling you know, which island many of his finches came from, you know? <laughs> I know. Tragedy. So, I, yeah. <laughs> irony there. Um, and he had to scramble later, yep. you know, with the help of the captain and others. Yep. Um, luckily, a lot of people were interested in making biological collections, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so he, he came to this. Um, uh, the thinking is that maybe it was probably kind of it built, you know, he returned in, what was it, maybe like October of, of 1836. And, um, you know, again, he wasn't an expert. And so others were, you know, the really established, you know, professionals were, were studying his specimens, you know, people like, like um, John Gould, the ornithologist studying right. his birds, and you had, you know, Henslow maybe looking at his plants initially, and then you have uh, Richard Owen, the the comparative anatomist and paleontologist, looking at his fossils, and and apparently it's you know these other guys that are pointing out, wow, this is really bizarre. This is right. really very interesting. You know right. these you know these unusual things that you found, and and so he seemed to you know kind of be taking this on board, and then maybe by the following spring, become like suddenly convinced that. You know, if you start to kind of take these these anomalous observations, these curious patterns in, you know, the, the kinds of fossils he was finding and their distribution and patterns of relationship of species in Galapagos and how they might relate not just to one another on different islands, but how as a whole they relate to the South American mainland birds. Right. You know, um, apparently he had this sort of epiphany that the only logical explanation was, you know, the idea that um, species must be able to change, right, right over, t- over time. And, and that, that becomes his personal, you know, and private heresy, you know, right. that, but he becomes quite, quite convinced. Um, and that launches him into this, um, you know, this, the, down this path of, of, of investigation. Right. And I think it's interesting that the first piece is he goes out and observes and really gets those experiences, comes back, makes sense of them through help with specialists. Then the insight is, I'm convinced that species change. Yes. And then how does that happen? Then how? Right. Yes. And yes. my, I have to say, I have a theory now, especially, um, you know, your, your book, um, the, on the, the origin, the annotated origin, which mm. we'll put in a brief plug for here because, if anybody wants to know about the origin of species, the book, they should get the annotated origin and read it because it has annotations alongside that's like reading it with you, right? Mm-hmm. And having you explaining things, which is, I think, the whole point of it. And it's it's great. And if you look at the first chapter, right, the first chapter is variation under domestication, right? right. right? <laughs> and so it's clear. It talks about, obviously, ducks and rabbits, especially pigeons. I'm sure we'll get to a little bit of that. Mm. And, of course, dogs. And, you know, in some ways one of the theories I have is that he came back from the Galapagos, got all these pieces of information about, hey, species changed. And then he looked at one of his dogs. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm plugging the dog watch here. Yeah, I'm joking a little bit. But but basically, in, a, in a, at least a um, sort of theoretical sense, he sort of looked at his dogs or his pigeons or whatever and said, how did you guys get to be that way? Mm. How did you, how did that happen? And then... Oh, if that can happen for domesticated animals, right? 
then maybe it, maybe that's how it happens in nature. So it seems like there's some element of truth in that. Is that is that fair, Jim? I mean, I'm I'm stretching a little bit. Obviously, he didn't just look at his dog and have an epiphany about. <laughs> <laughs> well, he probably selection. Did, you know, how he 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 loved his dogs. He know, did. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute for um, sure. Yeah. But um, um but, but you know but, what no, I mean? I, I like, think that that is fair. You know that he. You're. I think that that kind of that sort of order of insights. You know, um, traveling and seeing the world and and you know being dazzled at the time, but maybe not, you know, insightful about what the deeper meaning might be, and then being led to realize that, you know, wow, yeah, you know, um, but the, you know, species must be able to change, but how? And then, yes, I, I, I think that, you know, very early on from what we can see from his notebooks, you know, all of which survive, yeah. um, you know, absolutely is thinking about the nature of variation, the origin of variation, um, you know, you know, the, the barnyard, you know, the, the garden, you know, these yeah. were, these were, you know, natural places for him, to, you know, to kind of think about the nature of, uh, of variation, you know, because, um, the horticulturists and the, the animal breeders, they're really in the business of, of really discerning, um, variation, you know, kind of nu- nuance and, of, uh, and, and really there's an awful, an awful lot of it, a lot of, a lot of diversity, right. um, that gets reflected in, in for any one of these groups, a diversity of breeds, you know, or cultivars, yeah. we might call them today, I guess. Um, and so I think you're, I think you're right that, um, domestication and, and surely, you know, um, you know, look, looking at, at, at his dogs, uh, absolutely <laughs> contributed to his, to this insight. Yeah. I, I am just, you know, using that as a, as an example, but, uh, but, no, there could, I know. but there is some, some I mean, they're the closest it, animal, they're the cl- closest and domesticated animals. I mean, that's clear. Right. And probably yeah. the ones he would love the most, I think. So it's not, it, you know, all of us who like dogs, I think, and even those who may not like would be questioning mm. how did you get all those breeds right like they're so different um what's that process like and i, I loved yeah, in darwin's yeah. backyard which is your most recent book uh about sort of darwin and, and the sort of i guess you could call them sort of backyard barnyard experiments and how mm. he did stuff around the house which is a great example um i love the way you, you talked about picking right like who does the picking or choosing of which right, right animals or which traits go on and also you talked about the domestication or the process of domestication as an analogy yes right and i thought those were two things that i picked up on that are really um just sort of simple in statement but Mm. but help understand like what we're talking about here so yeah yeah that's really good yeah, I think, um, and you know, some historians and philosophers they you know, sort of discuss and argue a little bit about you know um, the role of of domestication as analogy, maybe focusing on the word analogy. But I actually like that word. I I, yeah. I, I see it that way. You know that that in a way, um, artificial selection and the way that breeds get developed um, by selectively breeding, right? Um, yeah on the basis of certain traits that the breeder, for whatever reason, dis, um, uh, deems uh, desirable. And they, it could be for ornament, it could be for some, you know, utility. Um, but, it, but, it, but it is a, an analogous process. Artificial right. selection really is a, a powerful analogy for, for natural selection. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's super helpful. And 
before we get, I have some questions about dogs and Darwin, no question about it, which we want to get to, but I, <laughs> I just wanted to just briefly ask, because we've talked about these examples of domestication and artificial selection being important in the develop, development of the theory, right? So in actually helping him come to the insight of natural selection or mm. evolution by natural selection. How would you say that he also employed them significantly as examples in his execution of the argument once he decided, yes, this is the way it works? When he, in his writing, et cetera, you've read more than anybody I know about Darwin, right? And of Darwin, like when you look across his writing, it seems to me as a more casual Darwin person that it's it's just written ac across all his stuff that he used both natural examples, mm. but but domesticated examples all over the place to help him execute his argument. Is that what would you? How would you respond to that? Yeah, I, no, I, I think that um, I think he often went back to that. Well, you know, it, it, it's true. Um, you know, and it, it, it's not you know both plants and animals. You know, using them. You know, using these groups that are that were often. Uh, readily available, right? Um, well, well known and well studied. Um, so to to kind of study them and um, you know try to try to develop them better as kind of models. You know the only the only group that he seemed to try uh, his own kind of real hands on study in domestication mm. with was pigeons, yeah, right? <laughs> uh, apparently, which kind of make makes sense yeah. in in a way. You know, being you know, many different varieties can easily be kept in a small area. Um, I think at the end of the day, most of them are probably eaten, right? So, yep. they, <laughs> so you know, they have their 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 value to the family that way too. Um, and it was a time, right, to to fancy pigeons in in London, yeah, in England, yeah, right? yeah. So. And certainly, generation time is is you know, there's a there, there's a, a lot to rec recommend it, but yeah. but his when he he worked on. Um, his his treatment of, of animals and plants under domestication, right. you see him take group by group a, a detailed analysis of um, the history, as far as he could tell. You know the history of each of these groups, whether it's it's um, equids, you know, or dogs, or 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 felines, and um, and trying to make a case for how we can learn how they what they can teach us about kind of. Um, uh, transmutational process, but also patterns of heredity. You know, he's interested in how variation um, doesn't quite know how it arises. He thinks it has to do with the environment. Environment stimulates variation somehow. He's interested in how it's expressed, how it's passed on, you know, those sorts of things. And um, domesticated groups are really, you know, the the system that he he uses to try to get a handle on that. Yeah, and I mean, again, I don't mean to imply that there weren't natural examples. Of course, he had books on orchids and earthworms and barnacles. Like he used natural examples too, but there were mm. these things. And and that um, variation under domestication, the first chapters on dogs and cats, right? Yep, and yep. expressions of emotions, chapters one and two. So I'm curious, like when we get to dogs and think about dogs, how did dogs fit in for Darwin professionally? Like I, I just sort of mentioned those two books, right? Mm -hmm, Starting mm -hmm. with them. So how would you frame that for people and sort of understanding like did, did Darwin use dogs and cats or dogs especially as examples? And what was he using them for in those two books? Mm -hmm, you know, what mm -hmm. was the purpose of those books as far as his argument goes? 
Yeah, he um, he was he was keen on. Well, so of course he 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 well knew you know um, dog uh, behavioral you know, diversity. You know, diversity among breeds. Um, he over the course of his life, you know, he he had he always had dogs. It seems from the time he was a kid, right? Um, and some of them were kind of working dogs. You know, he had you know his favorite you know pointer. You know, when he was a college student, and um, you know, he had terriers, and um, he. So I think that he um, not only was interested in you know the idea that they could be used to demonstrate that, or at least they sort of present a, an, an example of how behavior or instinct could be heritable, hmm. right? Which is, mm -hmm. you know, so he was convinced that, you know, uh, it's not just morphology, it's not just anatomy, you know, um, that that can be heritable. Some, somehow um, behaviors, instincts uh, are as well, and there's no better, there's no easier demonstration than to point to, you know, certain dog breeds, you right. know, herding dogs or, or pointers, retrievers. Um, so that was one interest, certainly. And and the other interest, which is a little, maybe a little bit more um, sort of um, reflecting his his kind of personal relationship with, with dogs, with the dogs that he loved, is when he was exploring the... Uh, expression of emotions, mm -hmm. right? And this idea that, um, you know, we, we also sort of mentally and emotively evolve, that these things are also shaped by natural selection. And he's interested in how you can trace maybe among um, different groups of mammals, uh, how similar uh, groups of muscles maybe play a role, let's say, in facial expressions or in expressing certain emotions like, um, you know, anger, you know, fear, uh, um, contempt, you know, those sorts of things. And he um, he readily saw those things as as being exhibited um, just as much in, say, his cherished dogs and 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 other animals as in people. And he thought that this is yet another way to understand, you know, the evolution of humans. Uh, and our emotion, um, and our maybe even our aspects of our cognition, and so his interest in dogs, you know, he's he's looking at their body language, you know, he's looking at at expressions of um, of their uh, of of happiness, of love, right, of 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 fear or um, or 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 anger, um, aggression, let's say. And, and he's sort of making careful observations of that body language and looking at the musculature, not literally, like not dissecting dogs, you know, but just making careful observations and, and, um, and then equating them with, you know, the way that these things are expressed in, in people and finding a direct correspondence. Right. And so, just so I'm clear, it's fair to say that Darwin looked at dogs, studied dogs, and other animals that expressed um, emotions, his book, Expressions of Emotions, right? That wasn't just a one-off. That was actually part of his building argument, right? It's not just yes. it's not just behaviors or the size of a horse's legs that are under selection. It's all these other things. And here's another book, <laughs> starting yes, with yes. dogs, to show you that. Is that fair? Yeah, 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 I, I, absolutely. Um you know, expression of the emotions um, came out right after the descent of man. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So the thinking is that, of course, you know, given Darwin and his enthusiasms, you know, right. he, um, he, he kind of began to delve into this, this idea of the expression of emotions and looking at that sort of, let's say, facial musculature and the way we use facial expressions to express certain emotions and trying to understand um, how th- those relate to the way similar emotions are expressed in other animals. And it snowballed, you know, big yeah. time and, and then and became a whole other tome, you know, in itself. So I think initially his, his idea was to um, look at, um, he's interested in, in human evolution mainly in the descent of man. Uh, and, it, and it makes a case not just for the physical um, descent of humans from primate ancestors, but actually makes a very long argument for a process for that. He argues that it that is driven largely by sexual selection. Right. Um, but then, as part of that, to understand the, our mental evolution, almost as a spin-off, but a complementary volume, he gets into this expression of emotions and the kind of me- mental evolution, and that's where he needs to draw upon what he can learn about the expression of emotions in, in other um, groups, including the, um, his studies of dogs yeah. at, at that point. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And I, get, I think back to your earlier point about who Darwin was, the fact that once he had this idea and came to the, you know, looked at his dog and came up with <laughs> natural selection, <laughs> sorry. Um, but you know what I mean? Once he came up with this synthesis of the idea, then really when you look at his books and all the work that he did, mostly in these big books, really were like contributions to advance that theory. They weren't, you know, you could look at barnacles or whatever and be like, oh, it's some random book. But these are not random books. They are a a, a part of an argument, right? That's a good good point to make because, um, yeah, I think you're right. When you when you look at the diversity of of Darwin's books, you know, and then and his many papers also, right. yeah, it, it can seem like he's sort of all over the place, you know, you know. There's like all these tomes on barnacles, you know, and then you've got <laughs> yeah. you know, um, you know, Origin of Species, but then right after that comes a book on orchids, and then there's you know one on carnivorous plants and another one on climbing plants, and you know, and then suddenly, boom, Descent of Man, you know. Um, so it seems like, you know, he's sort of, you know, he's just all over the place, you know, and it's just maybe the uh, enthusiasms of some, you know, kind of doddering naturalist that you know, loves puttering around and exploring all these different things, which would be fine, you know, <laughs> you know that, but, but I think that there is a method to the, <laughs> to the madness. Um, and I, the, the way I've put it uh, in, my, in my writings is, you know, Darwin himself called on the origin of species one long argument. Um, because that book in itself can seem like it covers an awful lot of ground, and yet it is cohesive. It's all it's all sort of of a piece in arguing for um, this this central idea, uh, really the two part idea of the reality of species change and the mechanism for it, natural right. selection. And I see um, really all of these other books you know, kind of writ large, you know, as one longer argument, hmm. um, the way I, I think of it, you know, that he, you know, he certainly, um, even some of his very earliest ones, his first books were, were geological in nature, but he, and even them, you know, you're kind of getting a sense of Darwin trying to understand um, the, 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 the world, um, you know, through these certain um, processes, you know, these, right. these mechanistic Lyellian processes, as he would have um, put it. 
And um, but then later, especially after the origin, um, all of these various books, you know, the climbing plants, the carnivorous plants, you know, the descent of man, expression of the emotions, the earthworm book, it's all uh, exploring different facets, you know, the, the implications of the theory, like um, following it out. Uh, what are the implications? What 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 can what can we learn from orchids? You know, do they do they what can they teach us about um, about diversification and natural selection, for example? Uh, what about earthworms? What can they teach us about uh, about um, uh, the mind and about um, the idea of of organisms like humble earthworms as geological forces? You know, that shape reshape the landscape. Um, so I, I think you're right that they're they're not just random these these books they're 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 all of um, all of a piece. Yeah, well, you know, I want to be respectful of your time and and everything, but I do have one more sort of point or question, and I think it kind of what we were just talking about brings us back to to Downhouse, right, to where he lived in the sense that. I find it fascinating that most of those things that you mentioned were things that he, I mean, he wasn't a tottering naturalist who just did random stuff, but I think your, you know, recent book on Darwin's backyard, that a lot of that happened at Downhouse, right? And I, mm, I think it's yes. it's cool to think that you don't have to just go on the voyage of the Beagle, which he did, but he did a lot of his work at his home mm. and in the countryside of, of England. So yeah, what's really neat, I think, uh, at least for me, is the idea of the walking path and that he would go down the walking path and with his dogs. And I pulled out a quote this morning about <laughs> from from expressions of emotions mm. when he talks about this dog he used to have who would, you know, show pleasure by trotting gravely before me like when he would go for a walk on the walking mm. path. But then when he turned to the right, leading to the hothouse or the greenhouse where he was going to check on his plants, the dog would <laughs> look all downtrodden and then his ears <laughs> right. would slo slope down, et cetera. And, um, you know, it just kind of showed like that Darwin was, you know, I, I don't know, maybe he had a sense of humor, but also really took a lot of care in his dogs too, that, you know, he's, yeah, he, yeah. he noticed. But I, I'm curious, and I've wanted to ask you about this for a while, because I think, you know, you have an interest in, in down and the gardens and all those things there, mm. about the walking path, because I, with my students and with myself, have learned more about walking and and the connection to the mind, right? Mm. And I wonder if you might describe the walking path for those of us who hadn't been there, and so we can kind of imagine Darwin taking the walks with his dogs, and a lot of, I think, the thinking that we've been talking about takes place there or is aroused by that. So what what is the walking path and kind of what, what was going on there? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, that that is um it's a very it was a very special place for for Darwin. It's kind of right, you know, um right close to the house. Um I think you know, oh gosh, what is the it's a loop path, you know, a, a gravel path. Um gosh, the the length of the loop, I want to say maybe maybe it's half a mile. Okay. You know, kind of out and back. Um I I could be way off on that actually, even though I have walked it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um and you know, on one side, the the path um, goes alongside a, a, a great meadow, um, and there's a, a hedge, and then a meadow beyond, okay. and then it kind of um, loops back through a woodland with um, with some you know nice nice big trees, probably some of which you know Darwin planted you know um, uh, way back, huh. um, and you know it was. 
it was kind of a nice little little woodland you know wildflowers would would you know appear and disappear you know with with the seasons um darwin liked to take his daily kind of constitutional walk and you know depending on maybe his time or what he was thinking about he might take one turn he might do multiple turns um so famously he would you know the the, the gravel in that area it's all this kind of um churdy material oh um the fields are just full of these nodules of, of, of chert. And, um, and often I think they're kind of ground up into a, into a gravel and maybe in places they're just naturally harvested from streams and rivers as gravel. And they're used as for these gravel, um, paths and drives and things. And, and so, um, but, but bigger pieces of stone, he would kind of put a number of them, um, at the uh, kind of the starting point of the, of the loop as you hmm. enter it from kind okay. of coming from the direction of the gardens. And, um, and so supposedly he would kind of decide how long he wanted to, to walk, how many turns, and there would be that many, you know, that number of stones. And each turn he would come around, he'd kick one aside. <laughs> um, and, uh, and often you're right, the dogs would, would accompany him. Uh, and sometimes, you know, he often did have visitors, even though he was something of a homebody. Yeah. You know, he kind of famously didn't really travel much at all, um, certainly not much out of the country. Um, after the Beagle voyage, uh, early on, maybe trip to to Scotland, um, but you know, certainly a little later when he began to manifest this mysterious illness, he just he just would take some you know seaside holidays with the family, you know, but but never really travel. He he really loved to just stay home and work, you know, right? And right. and his home, his study, and the gardens and the meadows and the woodlands were really his his little classroom and and, and lab. And and on that thinking path. Um, he would, um, you know, he would have visitors uh, that would come and, you know, maybe people that he would be engaging with kind of thinking about, you know, there could be people like um, Joseph Dalton Hooker, you know, his good friend, the botanist. Um, it might be Charles Lyle and his wife, you know, that are coming for a, a, a <laughs> couple weekend. of lightweights. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And they would go join him, you know, yeah. they would walk, walk around and, and presumably, you know, they would talk about, you know, these interesting interesting questions, um, as well as kind of gossipy, you know, sorts of things. Um, I like to imagine him, you know, kind of doing that kind of with his walking stick, kind of coming, coming around the the, the sand walk and, um, either knocking the stone aside with a stick or maybe kicking it. Um, and then saying, you know, one more turn, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and I don't know how much I'm making of it. That's kind of, of my own, um, self, right? But I, I do think, given what we're learning now about the importance of especially taking time away from screens, being active, and the connection mm. with the mind, um, I love that image of Darwin going on these walks and thinking, right? And, and that's not mm. an uncommon thing for thinkers to do, right? Across history, back to Greece, yeah. and etc. So mm. I just think it's a great physical symbol hmm. of that process and obviously it led to all you know the, a lot of the things we've been talking about um so it's cool yeah, someday yeah. maybe i'll get there so you've been there a lot right a number of times i would think I, i'm fortunate to have visited um several times yeah yeah, yeah. and and you know it, it really is um an amazing place it's it's managed by english heritage okay um and if, it is of course open to the public um the, the gardens are you know beautifully maintained the grounds um darwin's study uh and what i'm very excited about you know um the um 
the, the, the staff there, they just do an outstanding job with interpreting Darwin's experiments. Um, there are interpretive stations um, in his greenhouses, in the gardens, oh, wow. um, around, around the grounds, um, helping visitors kind of understand that this was a kind of um, living landscape laboratory, as, right. as some of us put it. You know, for him, you know, he, he got his best ideas oftentimes by doing just what you were just describing, you know, walking out there and, and, and observing, um, rambling, you know, uh, whether not just on the sand walk, you know, but maybe right. just, you know, kind of through through the countryside. They had a, a favorite little picnic spot um, not too far from the house that was called Orcus Bank, where a number of wild orchid species mm. grew. Um, this was a, a favorite spot to kind of be thinking about, you know, diversity and nature and um, just contemplating whatever, you know, and yeah. there were other areas, um, little ponds dotting the area and woodlands and meadows uh, where they would go, especially when the kids were smaller and um, just see what adventures they could have, what they could right. see and, and, um, and you know, what, what interesting insights they could glean. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a wonderful place. Jim, I wanted to thank you so much for spending time with us today. And it's always so great to be together and to learn from you. Um, and so I hope you have a great fall there in Appalachia and, and are able to get out soon to other places. And thanks again for joining us and teaching us so much uh, here on the Dog Watch. Well, you're very welcome, uh, Mike. And it's so good to you know connect with you again and um, really to have an opportunity to to talk about Darwin and dogs and all manner of things. Um, it's just a great pleasure. I really appreciate the invitation. It was such a pleasure to spend time with Jim today on the Dog Watch, and thanks again to him for providing such a fascinating window on Charles Darwin and some of the animals we know and love. Make sure to check out Jim's most recent book, Darwin's Backyard. As well, take a look at his annotated origin, which is a facsimile copy of The Origin of Species with annotations by Jim. He's written other books, Wallace, Darwin, and The Origin of Species, and for the most confirmed naturalists, the other insect societies. And don't forget to write a short review of The Dog Watch on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe. If you do, send an email to the onthedogwatch at gmail.com and you'll be entered in a drawing once we reach 100 reviews. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. Until our next shift, this is Michael Canfield thanking you for joining us on The Dog Watch. Dog Watch.